Hello and welcome to another episode of the Gaming Moguls Podcast, the only podcast where we're nine grams, non-slippery, and come in standard colors. I'm your host, Mark Teske, today, along with my co-host, Mr. Jacob Klappenstein. Jake, how are you doing? I am doing wonderfully. However, today is a very special day. Um, we have another mogul host today. How great is that? Guest mogul, introduce yourself. Hi, thanks for having me on. It's Craig Taylor here from uh, otherwise known as the co-host of the Train Rush. Good luck, say. Thank you very much for having me on. Well, we liked you so much the first time we thought we'd have you on again. I would have thought you'd have learned That's got to be a good... But there you go. Oh. <laughs> well, well, maybe we haven't yet. Maybe it'll take two times to actually realize the, uh, the stupidity in having you here. But we cannot wait to talk with you about games, Craig. It's always fun. By the way, Craig has threatened to drop the mic, his expensive podcasting mic, if I don't have nice things to say or if I refuse to review Craft Wagon. So we should like goad him into doing that. That'd be awesome. That'd be hilarious. We'll just have to tell him bad things just so we'll break the mic. Oh, funny <laughs> stuff. If you missed it, Craig was a guest of ours back on episode 15, and it was an awesome episode where we talked about games that punch above our weight. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to that one, would strongly recommend going back and giving that uh, a shot to your ear hole. And we've got a couple of special announcements before we get started here today. First up, we'd love for you to come and play games with us at MogulCon, coming up September 25th through 29th, 2019 in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. It'll be a full weekend of new friends and lots of great gaming, so more details to come shortly on that. And we've also got our new Moguls merchandise store open. Just go to GamingMoguls.com and click on the store button on the top of the page. Also, we now have the Gaming Moguls merchandise store open. It's at GamingMoguls.com and click on the store link at the top of the page. Right now we're selling great Gaming Mogul t-shirts and coming up soon we'll have some cool gaming accessories as well. So, with no further ado, Craig, you just spent a long weekend away in another country playing board games. Tell us about that. Sure. So, this weekend I was in Mechelen in Belgium at their 18xx Railcon. Second one they've done, and it was good enough to have me back. And, I mean, long story short, it's a weekend doing something I truly love. With the weekend window, you can play some of the longer, more epic titles that you couldn't fit into a weekday evening. It was, a, it was a great experience seeing people across Europe, players I wouldn't normally play with, players outside my meta, and also got to get my hands on a few prototypes from some big name designers, which was a pretty fun thing to do. Probably spent too much time playing the prototypes, to be honest. I'd heavily recommend it to anybody in Europe to make the trip if you can, because Belgium's reasonably easy to get to. But if you're from the States, then I hate to say it, you guys have got as big, if not bigger cons <laughs> with uh, cheaper transport yeah. costs near you. So uh, <laughs> probably not worth a flight, yeah. you know. Although to be fair, there was there was one American guy there who uh, bought his copy of 1822MX, so it's doable. Oh, wow. Uh, that's awesome. Um, how, how many people are actually at the convention? It was, oh God, that's a great question. Circa 30 people. Uh, which is not bad considering Mechlin's kind of basically just a suburb of Brussels. And um, it's, uh, well, I'm sure there's better things to be doing in the summer than sitting in a school hall playing board games for by most folks kind of standards. No, there's nothing better than that whatsoever. So, Craig, I did actually see on the Train Board Games group on Facebook photos from this little con, and I did spot you a couple times. Oh, don't, don't. I'll tell you what, you've also, you spied a lot more of me than you normally would have packed on the pound since we've had our first child. It's just <laughs> bad sleep equals bad eating decisions. It's just outrageous. Next Mecklen, I'm hoping to be like half the weight and twice the player. So we'll work, we'll work on both sides of that equation. Um, no, I got to play 18 Dortmund, which was a prototype from uh, Marflow, uh, which kind of combines weirdly 
I want to say food chain magnate kind of beer demand and making beer with 18xx. That was kind of cool, but the problem was we only played like two thirds of a game before we had to call it because it was the night we arrived and it's hard to kind of get a full set of thoughts on two thirds of a game. Um, But it seems promising and it's nice to see something innovative coming out of Marflow. Next day, I got to play another prototype, uh, sort of a weird uh, tramways game. Uh, Not tramways like Album VR, but literal tramways in Vienna, 1840. I played that last year, well, yeah, in the winter as well. Fun little game that kind of subverts some of your expectations about 18xx and how shares works and how dividends are paid. Also played some other games as well, specifically 1841, which was great because it's been on my shelf of shame for ages. And it's such a big one with companies owning companies. I just didn't have the the courage to take it on from the rule book. It seems like an absolute beast. And then closed it out with 1822 MRS. And as Mark knows, I've never played 1822 before. <laughs> so, so to play 1822 MRS to close out the conference was great. I mean, we'll be talking about those in more depth on my other podcast um, over the coming weeks. But, you know, it was great, a great weekend. Really, really enjoyed it. Is there any titles you want to ask me about in specific, guys, before I like, dominate your whole <laughs> opening of the podcast? You know, I would say that I would absolutely look forward to hearing your review of 1822 MRS on the train rush, because that's a title that I know Jake and I are both extremely interested in. And I got to agree with you, Craig. Uh, I'm currently in a game of online 1822 with you right now. And nothing I've seen would indicate that you have ever played it before. Ouch. Ouch. Brutal. I'll go and get get the saffron for those burns. Ouch. No, the... the, I'll, I'll tell you now, Mark, if I was playing 1822 MRS instead of 1822 online, it seems to pack a, a decent proportion of the experience in like half the runtime. So instead of the game taking us three months, we might finish it in a month and a half. It's, I mean, on that basis, I bear in mind, it's only one play, so it's definitely a first impression. It seems like a really good game just because you get all that fun of the auctions, the combo womboing of the privates, all that stuff, but it runs in half the time. And do you know what? If, if I can play it more often and therefore get better at it, rather than just fail for a long time, once every few months, then that makes a better title for my collection. Yeah, for sure. And and to be fair, Craig, for Jake's benefit, who's not in this game, it's one of the most hostile setups in an 1822 game that I've ever experienced. And just getting out of the first couple of rounds has been a success for all of us. I oh, know I was a fool. I got the timing wrong on the, uh, I, I misunderstood, at what point, uh, miss guesstimated how far Norwich is from London versus the Bank of L trains. Everything that's happening to me right now is entirely a product of my own foolishness, let's face it. (laughs) That sounds like every 18xx game I've ever played. Yeah, pretty much. Just an excuse for me to be mad at myself in the past. Now, why did I put the five train over here and not the diesel train over here? I'm so far right now, just uh, I'm sort of damning myself with mediocrity. I'm definitely not winning and I'm escaping the worst of the danger at the same time. I think you just caught me a bad window, right? At the moment, I've seemed to be able to see more about the plays in 18xx and forecast more stuff. Yet I'm getting worse. It's kind of like this roughs patch where you go, oh, I'm getting academically better at this game. But my play, well, I'm, I'm now in the bottom some quarter of the pack because I'm just doing bad stuff. I'm seeing, almost seeing too much. It's really just a really strange right. phase at the moment. Sometimes you, you, you can overthink something and get in your own head about something and talk yourself out of the right decision. I think it's because I'm trying to police every game I'm in. Like, you know, oh, Fred's ahead. So if someone doesn't bash Fred, he's going to win. I'll bash Fred. And of course, all this stuff comes at personal cost. Sometimes you need to leave it to Bob or Mark or Jake to bash Fred. Right. And not, not Craig's not always the basher. 
that sounds awesome. Well, I'm happy you guys are playing 1822. I wish I would have been able to join online, but regrettably with my life, it's going to be a little busy over the next couple of weeks and I didn't want to have you have to wait. So keep me in the loop. Mate, they're all waiting for me to take my moves anyway, so I wouldn't worry about it. Waiting is the (laughs) rigor. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I think two weeks of waiting when I'm in Thailand, though, would have been a little bit too much for everybody. So next time I want to hop in one once I'm back at start of July. So sounds fun. So Jake, I've also heard you've been playing online this week too. I have been. I actually think I played the fastest 18xx game online I've ever played ever, which is amazing. We played it in under a week and that it was it was amazing. I remember starting it saying I only have a short amount of time. Why don't we play a quick one really quick that plays well with two or three players and it went really quickly. So, I am talking about 18 Scandinavia by David GD Heck. I really like this one. I've played this one um, four times now, and it's kind of gotten a little better every single play of it, which is neat. So let me let me give a little bit of description about 18 Scandinavia. So for one, it's set in Scandinavia. It's incremental cap, but a little bit weird. So what that means is for every share sold, um, the money goes into the uh, into the treasury of the company. For those who may not know all the terms we use, it has a nationalization event, which is where a bunch of companies will merge together to form a national railroad. The miners in it become that national railroad. It has a very interesting bidding mechanism. So normally in these 18xx style games, they have waterfall auctions. In this one, what you do is you start a bid on the right to purchase a private. So for example, if we're all bidding on it, I say five, Craig says 10, Mark says 15, we all pass. Now Mark will pay 15 plus the face cost of anything that he bought. And then we keep on doing that until everyone passes on starting an auction or if we've bought all of the privates. The other thing I really like about this game is it's really fast. I've played it in person in under two hours fairly confidently. Um, And this is probably knowing about this game is probably the main reason that I think 18 Lilliput might not be for me. And the final great thing about this is it has the Euro player count number. It plays two to four. And at all of those plays, I've played all of them so far. It plays well. So have you played this one, Craig, or I've played this once with you, Mark, correct? No, I've never actually played this one. Oh, you were next to it. Have you played it, Craig? I'm afraid I haven't. I've played a lot of other David Heck designs, and he's actually one of my favorite 18xx designers right now. Um, and I, I can understand how it probably works well at two, because my experience of 1836 Junior is, although 18xx principally doesn't tend to work well at two, that was still interesting enough at two players. So he seems to be able to tune for that count. Yeah, it's nice. I like it for what it is. It's not my like ultimate favorite 18xx game. But I'd consider a higher tier game and the fact that it plays really well at two, three, and four and that it's fast means it gets thrown in my game bag very often. So thanks for playing with me online, guys. Had a really fun time. That's 18 Scandinavia. Mark, what have you been getting up to this week? I got one that I'm super excited to talk about because this is something that has been hanging over my head now for two two months at least, maybe. And probably about two months ago, let's smash back here. One of the people in this room right now, Mr. Craig, decided that he was just going to up and gift us with a with a game that he thought we would love for no other reason than he thought we'd love it. And the challenge is, is that there's always been somebody else that has had something else that needed to get played worse or something like that. So as a result, Craft Wagon has been in my bag constantly for the past two months, and we finally got it out and played it last night. So Craft Wagon there's a 2015 release published by Stronghold Games, and the designer is Matthias Kramer on that. It's a game about the early days of the German automobile industry. It's a Euro game with a really unique action selection mechanism where it's kind of a uh, centipede chasing its own tail, shall we say. And you can take any of the actions in the line 
And whoever's next in the list who is whoever's farthest back in the line. So if you want to take that awesome action that's way up in the front, other people may take several actions before you get a chance to take another one. Super cool. That was really, really fun. There's also interesting special powers in there with the development cards. And the whole idea behind the game is that you're trying to develop better car bodies, better car engines, and then put them up for sale. And then you're offering up buyers that are looking for different things. Like one guy's looking for just the cheapest car. Another guy's looking for the one with the best body. Another guy maybe is looking for the one with the biggest pit crew associated with it. And so you offer up those combinations of stuff. And then you try to put cars up that will get bought by these buyers. If your car gets bought, you get victory points. You proceed through three rounds and whoever has the most victory points wins the game. Man, this game was fun. We all loved it. We loved it so much <laughs> that J-Mac had it already in his Amazon cart before we had it boxed up again. Oh, that's awesome. I'm glad to spread the love there. I, I mean, I, without trying to diminish the gift, you're probably the third person I've bought Craft Argon for beyond myself. It's in my top five games just because it's, it's space food to me, right? It's, it's less than 75 minutes. It's small enough to take around with you. And the quality of decision in there for something so rules-like is phenomenal. I, I really, really love it. Did you get to see the market doing anything interesting things, Mark? Oh, yeah. We had real craziness in the third round where um, John had the engineer that would be, I think, you know, whether it was Auto Benz or whoever it was, that allows you to put out a fifth market buyer. And he had dominated engines and he had dominated something else. So he put out the fifth market buyer. Phil was dominating car body sizes and put out a couple things on there. And weirdly, had John, John ended up losing the game because he put out that fifth thing because he didn't realize that something else Phil did would actually sneak in and take those points from him. So had he have just left it at the four, John would have won going away. Yet Phil accidentally snuck in and took <laughs> an extra 15 victory points in the last market. Really interesting decisions in there. Now, I think it was probably my second or third game of that when I saw... Um, something happened in the market that you just couldn't forecast, you know, like the cheapest car suddenly went up to a, a different one because the one I thought was going to sell as the cheapest car had a better body and it went for a bad price and the cheapest remaining car was obscene. So the government subsidies just propelled said player into the lead. And you look at that and you just go, this is crazy, intelligent, almost emergent behavior from the game pieces from something that looks simple. Yeah, you really have to pay attention to the order of operations with the buyers, too. And that was something where some kind of unexpected things happen because you put up buyers on there. You can pick between the four guys, whether it's the pit crew, the engine, the, the car body or the cheapest. And you can put up two of those if you if you're really dominating in something. And but the, the, the hustle is they get evaluated in order top down. So the car that you think may score for the biggest engine may sell out before it even gets there. To the guy that's looking for the, you know, cheapest body or something like that. It, there's all kinds of different weird permutations that happen as a result of that. So that was where some of the strangest things happen, whereas where there was interactions due to the order of operations that people didn't anticipate. When the pleasure of the gift eventually, uh, you know, that shine disappears and you've had the fullness of time to reflect, I'll be interested to hear what your thoughts are down the line. Like I say, I've had the game a few years now and I will still play it anytime someone asks me. But, you know, we're all different. I'd be interested to see what future Mark Tursky and perhaps, if we're lucky, future Jake Clough, Jake K thinks about it. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Yeah, I, I, I'm really excited to try this one. I'm hearing you guys talk about it. It seems something that's within my wheelhouse of markets moving around and kind of permutations and a lot of agency. And I like cars too. So it was sad that I had to be at dance lessons last night and miss out for gaming. Not my choice. I guarantee you'll love this one, Jake. 
it's what we like to call comfort food of Euro gaming. You know, it's macaroni and cheese. It just tastes right. good. It just goes down really smooth. It feels really good. You know, playtime. Um, I, you know, I could teach this in 10 minutes. No problem. Next time around. It's really easy to understand how to play it. The iconography is good. And like I said, it playtime 75 minutes for people that are kind of get after it and have played it before. So that'll that'll get a lot of plays because it fits in a lot of spaces. That's awesome. It's criminal that no one's heard about it. That's the one thing I'll say. I mean, the, say no one. It's criminal. It's not more well known is what I really mean, because it's a great game. It's, it absolutely kicks the butt of Glenn Moore, in my opinion. And that guy got the Kickstarter. But I guess, you know, I guess does Glenn Moore have the looks? We'll find out after Kickstarter. Yeah, I I was amazed when you sent that to me. I had never heard of it either. And that, oh, we all said that afterwards. It's like, why have we never heard of this game? This is amazing. Who's it published by over there in Europe? Sure. So we'd pick it up from Stronghold in English language, or you can pick it up by ADC Blackfire, um, if they still exist as an independent entity in German, but it's language independent. So you pick up the German copy, you save yourself 10 bucks or euros or pounds and uh, just print the rule book. Bombs away. Easy. Cool. Cool. That's awesome. I'm excited to try it. That's Craft Wagon by Matthias Kramer, published by Stronghold Games here in the US. Craig, what else did you get to play? Well, I got to play one that's old news to you guys, but I finally managed to get a copy of it down my game shop called Blue Lagoon. I'm a big Rena Knizia mega fan. He's probably the only designer that I would consider myself a collector of, even his stinkers I'll give a go. And this one is far from a stinker. It's as abstract as they get. It's got shades of go. It's just not not in my wheelhouse at all, which is kind of the theme of this podcast, but that's by the by. But this one fell in love with instantly. And even the most cynical player at the table, my wife, who was trying to sort of block the purchase, inverted commas, and go going in with a massively negative attitude. By the end of it, absolutely loved it. I think it's a it's a great game. I, I can see why it got the hype. Strangely, over here, it's on the Asmodee clearance list, so you can pick it up pretty cheaply, cheaply at your um, board game retailers right now. Um, it's £15 over here, that sort of money. Wow, that's really cheap. It's a lot of game for that money. And I'll be frank, well, I know we talk about Rina Knizia being themeless, and this one is a similar thing where, you know, the Polynesian theme is kind of mare painted on. But like two-thirds of the way in, it kind of made sense, you know, as you're blocking these people off at the beaches and you're trying to block off the other tribes, get into your resources. I'm not going to say I was dripping in themes, not dripping in theme, and I was like feeling like part of the character. But it was a better match than some of Rina Knizia's stuff. Hmm. I've never actually played this one. In fact, I haven't seen it. I don't know oh. that I know anybody that owns it. Jake, have you ever played this? No, I haven't seen oh. it either. I think this is one of the games. Mark and I kind of gave up on the hotness, which is funny because now we're covering board games. But um, and I think this one was <laughs> right around the time where we kind of gave up on the hotness because this game came out in 2018, right? I should talk about it and shouldn't I? At least on a bit deeper level. I thought I, thought I was yeah. recycling old stuff for you guys. I'm so sorry. No, no, I've never, I've never even no, heard it. No. I was actually, if you could, if you can listen, I was actually typing in Blue Lagoon BGG to actually look at it. It's a beautiful looking little game. I've really done this to our listeners, giving them the cliff notes. Well, in this, in this case, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll tell you what it is. All the players represent uh, Polynesian tribes trying to dominate an archipelago of islands. You play the game essentially twice. You play it in the first round. You place tokens wherever you like in the water as canoes, and from there make landfall, okay? And the only chains you have to make are from your initial canoes. In the first round, you can also place huts. These are important because in the second round, you're going to start only being able to build from your huts and you have to make contiguous chains. Each round scores identically. You're going to score for presence on the islands, 
You're going to score for majorities on the islands. You're going to score for kind of picking up sets of resources out of five tribes. And you're going to score for having um, depth of resources as well. So spread and depth. So normal kind of game, Rina Knizia kind of scoring. But I tell you what, if Mark can teach Craft Arkin in 10 minutes, I can teach this in a minute and a half and we're all playing, fully understanding it. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah, for me, there's some, there's some value in that, right? Something you can close the night out on sensibly with even with people who haven't played it before. I say insta buy for me. Um, and I'm not even into abstracts. So yeah, credit where it's due. That sounds awesome. Mark, we're, Mark, me or you, who's going to be the person to, to get the short straw here? <laughs> well, we're challenged right now in that we've just got, we've lost an hour per night in the end of our game night. So suddenly now we're in this zone. We're like, hey, we got an hour. What are we going to play? So right. I think games like this have taken on a greater focus than ever. Sweet. It's added to my list then. It's on there. It's on my wish list as of now. So, Craig, step up to the plate. What are you scoring this on the mogul scale? It's it's a one on the rules. Definitely teach it in seconds. I mean, if there was a zero on the rules, I'd put it there. And in terms of depth, realistically, it's kind of like a satisfying B. You know, the moves are obvious and it's it's mostly a series of race conditions, but it's fun and direct and direct. And you still got a quality of decision when someone puts you in a tricky spot and you've got to make a decision between whether I'm going to try and connect that chain or pick up that pineapple. And sometimes, some evenings, that's enough. That's awesome. Blue Lagoon. I'm excited. I Hopefully we'll get it sometime soon, Mark. We need more fast, quick, into it games that are fun. Agreed completely. Speaking of online games, I really was only able to do any online gaming this past week. I've been playing a game that we talked about in our last podcast online through an awesome implementation. And I kind of wanted to highlight it because it's really cool. So there's a website called BoardGameCore.net, I believe. Um, Just Google BoardGameCore and it'll pop up. And they do an online implementation of The Great Zimbabwe, the game that we discussed at length last week. I've actually, since the time that we've played uh, Zimbabwe in person last, I've played this online four times, which is awesome that I can actually dig into the deep strategy of this game and kind of get ahead on it and explore everything through an asynchronous online implementation. Check it out if you like it. If you're into these styles of games, I think it's free to make an account on there. And if you ever want to play a game with me, shoot me a message on BoardGameGeek. I'd love to get one spun up. Hopefully we can uh, get it played in person sometime soon. What else did you get to play last week, Mark, when I was gone on Wednesday? So I got a chance to go out to a board game day a week ago Sunday. It was International Tabletop Day, and a friend of mine hosted a few people over there to play games. And it was fun sort of sitting back, letting somebody else drive the train for the day. And I got a chance to play a bunch of games that I had never, ever played before and really, really had a fun day playing over there. So jump in and talk about a couple of those. We started the day playing Istanbul which I had never played before. I know that's a fairly well-known title and so forth, and I absolutely loved it. Either of you played Istanbul ever? No, I've only played the dice game. I've, I've played the full game. Um, it's, it's a good game. I think I prefer Yokohama. I would agree with you completely on that topic. Yokohama is one of my absolute favorite games, but there was a joy in a version of Yokohama that took less than an hour and was super easy to teach. And just was a kind of a lighter, simpler version of Yokohama, because as much as I love Yokohama, let's face it, it's a little bit heavier and a little more set up and a little longer and so forth. So getting that buzz in a one hour game that plays five players is something I could certainly find room for on my shelf. Well, it's one my friends say is significantly elevated by some of the expansions as well. So unlike a lot of the Euros that I can think of right now, where I'd say the expansions just make them broader rather than deeper, or there's not a lot of reason to buy the expansion. 
with Istanbul, if you buy the big box that I think is in retail right now, where you get all the expansions, that's not a wasted purchase versus just the base game. Hmm. Yeah, that's good to know. Just a little bit of background. Uh, Istanbul, much like Yokohama, is a case where you've got a randomly set up group of tiles that represent the locations that you're at. You have a stack of workers and you move one or two spaces and you leave a worker behind or you move to a place where you already have a worker and you pick that worker up. If you don't have workers to drop, you can't go there. So you're limited by the stack of workers and how you move around there. Some of the spaces will allow you to pick up some resources. Other spaces will allow you to buy and sell resources for money. Others will let you increase the size of your cart that you can carry. And there's things like your cousin, which you can go send to another space to do your thing for you. And ultimately, what you're trying to do is collect rubies by either trading in resources for them or spending money on them. First one to five rubies wins the game. I think it's actually points after that, but plays out really quickly. And like I said, it's something that travels around the table pretty fast in terms of analysis. Paralysis is pretty low. So really enjoyed the experience on that. So that's Istanbul. I would rate that. Eh, ultimately, it's probably a 3C on the mogul scale. It's a midweight euro. No question. Second up we played is we got a chance to play Coimbra, which was uh, kind of the hotness last year. And again, we're kind of we've sort of been anti hotness lately. So <laughs> we heard about it. We saw it win a lot of awards and we kind of noped on it. So it was interesting that I got a chance to pull it out and get a chance to play it. And not to give the wrong impression on this review, I did enjoy myself. It is a fun game. I'm glad I played it, but I don't need to own it. Kind of <laughs> giving you the lead up front on that one. For starters, it might be the most themeless Euro that I've ever played or ever seen in my entire life. To the point where, I mean, none of the theme that made any sense whatsoever and was completely a generic abstract by the time you boiled it down. So yeah, for starters, there was definitely no theme carrying this one. The actual gameplay is a case where you roll a bunch of dice, you pick one of those dice, and then you use that to try to buy a card in one of the three markets or a little bonus on uh, the fourth spot on there. And they're evaluated from biggest to littlest and you pay the amount based on the size of the dice you commit. The challenge is, is this thing is unholy AP prone where <laughs> you're evaluating a multidimensional tactical decision. It's really about what cards are available and what dice are there. So you can't really pre-plan anything before your move. When it's your turn, you look at the dice that are available. You look at the cards that might be available based on what other dice are there. And you decide, is that a color I need? Is it a power that I need? Does it have a ribbon on there that I need? Is it part of a set that I need? Also, which color dice do I want to use? Because that turns on or off the type of income I get at the end. So there's about, uh, oh, I don't know, an eight dimension tactical decision that needs to be made with the placement of every dice. And the AP got pretty bad in selection on that. But all in all, fun time played out in about two hours. And uh, I'm glad I got a chance to play it. But uh, that's my thoughts on Coimbra. Gentlemen, if, I know you haven't played it, Jake. Have you played Coimbra, Craig? No, I've still got it in shrink. Do you think that AP on the tactical decisions might reduce with a lower number of players? Because I know some people avoid five tribes at four players because of that whole uh, highly mutable board state, can't make a decision until it's my turn thing. Do you think it might be more satisfying at two? No, no. Well, I mean, yeah, there's less people that have to make a long decision. So just sort of by lack of number of players, I think it might be a little bit better. But no, it does not reduce the decision space because of having less players in there. You still have to pick a dice and you still have to pick one of the cards and put it on there and then evaluate it. And I think that it's a linear reduction in AP just because of having less players. It's definitely not a geometric reduction. Okay, that's oh, just so you know, guys, there's another used copy of Coimbra on BGG right now. Brand new and shrink <laughs> in the UK. Uh, 
<laughs> well, it's, it's funny. Um, this game was totally on my wheelhouse or in my, on my radar this past Gen Con. And I remember walking by the booth like two or three times and being like, eh, I don't, I, I don't know what it was that never let me push it off the, the edge for something I'd be interested in. But hearing your description of it, Mark, it almost sounds like someone who's not into Euro's like worst nightmare. It like has the most Euro-y style terms that you've heard in other games like ribbons or groupings or sets or all these stuff pulled together at once. And I didn't hear one theme coming through on your description whatsoever. What are you actually doing in the game? Are you like building little cities? Um, I don't actually know. So there's like this <laughs> map where you're moving this guy around. <laughs> it doesn't ostensibly monasteries. Well. I don't know. There's these ribbons. It's a set collection game that are supposedly like diplomas. And so you're, I don't know, collecting diplomas from monasteries. I don't even know. Gosh, that does not bode well for this game. <laughs> oh, supposed it is the best accolade for any theme attribute, guys. You're supposedly so-and-so cheapest creepers. Gosh, Mark, maybe, maybe, maybe it was just like last episode. You were a little zoned out when the, uh, when the, uh, when the, when the, when the, when the, when no, the game description no, happened. Having... probably was dripping with theme. You just had no idea. <laughs> And also, to be fair, the guy that taught it did a great job of teaching it, but he pretty much just did just the rules and omitted any description of what people were and what the theme was. So I'm sure that didn't help. The other thing I will say about it, too, is that, like I said, the decisions are extremely tactical. You really have to evaluate it when it's your turn on what is the option that's available to you right now. But the sort of bad part about it is, is that there was a number of times that I got to it and I just sort of went, eh, I'd be happy with any of those four. I'll just put one there. So it's one of those that even if you don't get the one you want, the rest of them are okay too. So that sort of reduces the importance of a lot of these decisions. Right, when everything's meh. So when all the paths kind of balance out so that we're going to average out about three victory points, oh well. Yeah, that's exactly what the case was. It was a case where, all right, there's uh, there's four tracks there and mm, yeah, any really any of these would be fine. I'm, I'd be happy with any of those. Uh, some would be better. So it was tough to try to wire together any sort of strategy because at the end of the day, kind of all the choices were fine. So that's Coimbra by Flaminia Brazzini and Virginio Gigli. This is actually the designers of Grand Austria Hotel and uh, Lorenzo Il Magnifico, both games we like quite a bit. So like the designers work, just maybe this one isn't our favorite. Got it. On the mogul scale, it's a 3C. So, quick opinion poll, guys. Which of you guys absolutely loves the feeding part of Agricola? Me. Nobody. I mean, I, I enjoy what it does, but I don't want to just feed people. And, and let me rephrase that. How many of you love the worrying about being able to feed your people oh, in I like Agricola? That a lot, actually. I like oh, that a lot. Oh, it's, po- it's, po- it's positive <laughs> tension, right? It's the definition of positive tension. Okay, and how many people love the obstacle course at the end of Galaxy Trucker in each round where you're just everything you've built just gets blown to crap? I like it when your stuff gets blown up in every game. I don't know if I like it when my stuff gets blown up, though. I I like it up until the point my stuff actually gets blown up. So the game I'm referring to is World Without End, which is based on the Ken Follett series of books. It's about essentially an era during the plagues in Europe and England, especially designed by Michael Rennick and Steven Stadler. This game actually is very thematic based on the book. And if you've read the book, it's a a turgid potboiler of ups and downs. It's the they get the chapel built and then it burns down and then they get married and everybody's happy. Then they get the plague and die. And then their child gets stolen by the local lord and made into a prince. And then he's captured and murdered by the local invaders. It's literally that up and down. And so is the game. So if you love the worrying about feeding your people in Agricola and the destruction of everything you hold dear to you in Galaxy Trucker, this, my friends, is the game for you. <laughs> what good marketing read. I'm sure people are going to really like that. Uh, but the sound of it is sounding uh, set in Britain in the 1980s. Uh, is that correct? <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, um, the the 1600s or Brexit, you take your pick. (laughs) Ouch, ouch. (laughs) Again, I'm going to have to get my, again, I'm going to have to get my salve for my burns. This is, (laughs) this is something else. (laughs) So actually, this is a great game. I really had fun doing it, but it was severely uncomfortable the whole time. So what happens is you're trying to complete different buildings around town, like a hospital or a cathedral. You're also trying to cure people with the plague. So you're trying to accumulate resources and you're trying to get in tight with the king. And you're trying to learn about medicine so you can help people. And what happens in every round is when it's your turn, there's a basically a storyline card that comes up that I would say 75% of them are terrible. Like in the game, what you do is you have like 16 cards or something like that. And you every round play one and you throw one away. So you're reducing your hand and playing one out. That's really cool. One of the cards will say like, okay, discard half your hand before you even take your turn. So you can't make any tactical decisions for the rest of that round. You're just stuck with the cards you have left. You have to guess what might happen as the round goes on. Other ones might be where it increases the amount of tithing at the end, or you have to throw away half your resources or, you know, something terrible like that. Then you get some amount of payday on that. And then you basically spend your entire round trying to meet this level of tithing that happens at the end. Every round, you have to have a certain amount of grain. You have to have a certain amount of, I don't know, piety or something like that. And the penalties for not having those things are horrific. Like get no income next round if you don't have enough piety or something like that. It's brutal. Like you will lose the game if you don't ma- if you don't manage to get that. So anyway, played out in about two hours. Extremely thematics to the books. If you love the books, you'll love this game as well. And uh, I really had a fun time playing it despite the discomfort it involved. Well, those missions sound like an extreme version of Orleon, Jeepers Creepers. I, uh... <laughs> Yeah, it's just just let you know, it's not in my shopping cart right now, Mark. <laughs> you know, there is a little bit of thematic uh, comparison to Orleans without the, uh, you know, worker bag placement uh, drawing Sparta aspect of it. But yeah, it's, it's Orleans if you didn't have enough resources at the end of every event and the events all involved you like losing everything you had. <laughs> wow. That's that's awesome. I, I do like games that make you <laughs> suffer. I also like it when the entire table suffers, not just one person's bullying somebody. So maybe I'd, maybe I'd like this one, Mark. Kind of seems up my wheelhouse. Well, and honestly, I think you bring up an important point there, Jake. That is why it was fun, is the fact that literally we were all having a shared set of trauma together on this one. A bit like playing the Grizzled, where it just hurts. But everybody's hurting and everybody's managing that one. And it's not one person ganking another one. It's literally kind of everybody against the game. And by the way, you're trying to score the most. Interesting. Wait, 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 wait. How come you guys don't like 18 Islands? Because you just described 18 (laughs) Islands. Uh, That's funny. That's funny. (laughs) Uh, If if only 18 Ireland really were that, we'd like it. Fair enough. (laughs) True. My challenge with 18 Ireland is that it's way too easy to just get torpedoed mercilessly out of the game and then spend the, the next three quarters of the game in receivership, basically unable to do anything and just tolerating out the end of the game with no way of recovering at all. Well, and also getting torpedoed didn't help that one person at all. It was just like not even convenient. They just thought they should torpedo you at that point in time. Yeah, you can accidentally get in the way of the fourth place player. (laughs) <laughs> and 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 be out of the game and really you know it was just the best move for them and they didn't have any reason to actually do that yeah but they didn't end up winning anyways it was just like oh no i'm in third okay cool fun now we're both in a crappy position but anywho we don't want to talk about that one too much you experienced it together guys but i'm being somewhat facetious because it's on my mind yeah yeah i played it this weekend hence it's on my mind a bit i apologize for derailing us there speaking of getting back on rail why don't we talk about the main topic that we have this evening planned for us 
So often when you're the game purchaser in a game group, you will see a game or hear about it or hear about someone describe it on BGG and you just know, or you're reading the rules and you just know this game is good for that. That's happened good for a certain person. So that's happened to me whenever I'm reading a rule, I'm like, I know Mark is going to love this game. Like when I was actually reading the rules to Leaving Earth, I was like, oh, Mark is going to absolutely fall in love with this game. I'm sure he's going to like it. However, sometimes when I think somebody's going to absolutely hate a game, they end up loving it. So what I thought would be a fun conversation for this podcast here is we all kind of think of games that we inexplicably love, whether it be like not something that's normally in our wheelhouse, whether it's something that you kind of thought you would hate, but ended up liking and you can't really rationalize it or something along those lines. I thought it'd be fun to kind of talk about some of the weirder games. Craig, why don't you knock us off and start us off with one of your favorite games you inexplicably love? Sure. Well, I'll start out with a cultured European entry as that's a what I bring to the podcast. So from, oh, I know, nice. I know, I know. <laughs> so the game, that, the small box entry that I'm putting into this list is Maud Imarossa, designed by Alessandro Zucchini. No, I'm not kidding there. Uh, released in 2010 <laughs> uh, by Zoc Verlag. It's essentially, it's who done it in a box. Okay. But no, no, don't, don't zone out on me, guys. Don't zone out on me. It's not, it's not one of those sort of games. So you all stay in a hotel and a pair of murders occur. You're all potential suspects, and the game's going to play out to determine who is guilty, right? So we're going to build this hotel out of cardboard boxes with uh, skylights in the top of each of them, Uh, sort of like nested cardboard boxes, kind of like Russian dolls, but square. We're going to build the seven floors of this tower, and then we're going to drop cubes in there. Two of the cubes are going to be murder victims. They're the red cubes. And then then all the players are going to drop two cubes in there each. That's their uh, player evidence, for want of a better term. Now, the whole thing around this game, and Mark will appreciate this as an audio guy, it's about listening to where the cubes land or where you think they land. Oh, cool. Yeah. Mm. It's one of those ones that's so it's like, a, like, like a rain stick. Yeah, you've got it. You've got it. Imagine, yeah, it's like a rain stick, but bigger and uh, ostensibly you can work out where things are. Clue, you can't work out where things are. Um <laughs> And there's a bit of preamble. I mean, there's three phases to the game. We'll go into the details. This isn't, this isn't a Rodney Smith watch it played style thing. But the game plays out where you are trying to scrub away your evidence and find other people's evidence by trying to guess where their cubes are or if you think you've got too many cubes in the tower. And also there's um, an element of trying to be mindful of where the bodies are. Okay. The game will end when someone is absolutely coated in evidence because all their cubes are on the board. We're going to score, you know, the 10 of their cubes are on the board, and we're going to score whose evidence is nearest the bodies. Um, whoever has the most cubes near the bodies loses. Whoever has the fewest cubes on the board wins because they're obviously, you know, they're clean, clean as a whistle. Um, it, I shouldn't like it, right? I mean, it's arguably a luck fest in the sense that you can't really hear what's happening inside that box. Not, not unless you've got the ears of a bat. It's got virtually no cerebral functions whatsoever. You can't hedge. There's no strategy. It, this thing is designed, you know, it's a kid's game, you could argue, except adults love it. And weirdly, I love it. It exercises a part of my mind and a part of my joy-giving centers, for want of a better term, that I don't get from strategy games. And when it goes horribly wrong, everybody at the table is laughing. You know, are oh, you guessed you guessed the scrub evidence on that floor? There was none there. Stick a handful of cubes in the tower. Did they hit the floor where they hit? It's just it's just chaos in a box, but it's so much fun. Wow, yeah, because I'm looking on online right now on BGG, and this thing is like a real tower. It almost looks like a 
like a stacked up little hotel in New York. Well, they'd say probably in Berlin, if we were being honest, you know, it's, it's not, oh, it's it not is. murder in Brooklyn. Yeah, it's yeah. Mordi Marossa. So, but it, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's like I say, the thing about it that really sings to me is the fact it uses a uh, sense that you just don't use in board gaming, which is your hearing. Yeah, that's for sure. And I, I, I doubt this is available in the U.S. I've never heard of it, never seen it, and it doesn't appear to be published by anybody here in the U.S. So that definitely not something I'm familiar with, And it, but it looks awesome. Well, hopefully, well, you could probably make it yourself, if I was being honest. It's not, it wouldn't be beyond you making it with your uh, Glowforge, Mark. I don't want to lose 20 minutes to a Glowforge conversation. But, <laughs> like last episode. <laughs> but, but you could make what you could make. Stacking boxes are easy to make. You should make this, Mark. I'll, I'll send you the dimensions. Yeah, cool. Awesome. Mord Im Arosa. And what would the rating be on this one, Craig? Oh, it's a 1A all day, but it's a fun one. It's a fun 1A. You know, sometimes light and silly is what you're looking for in an evening. And again, this fills that brief. Jake, what's your number one? In no particular order, I actually kind of grouped two games here together. I would describe myself as a hardcore gamer. I mean, like we talk about this often, but I don't care about the art and production in 18xx style games. So makes me feel like I'm a cool kid. So the game I'm describing is uh, very much on about the uh, not not about really the gameplay. It's more about the experience and kind of the presentation of it, which is strange because usually another thing I dislike in games is minis. I don't really think they're cool. They usually take up too much game spice and they make the game way more expensive. So when there's a mini dice chucking kind of take that e game, I usually would hate it. But I am actually in love with this game. I'm speaking of Arcadia Quest by Eric M. Lang and Simon over here in the States. So as I said earlier, this is a mini game that is take that and has a bunch of dice in it. So what you're doing is you're different guilds in Arcadia trying to solve or, or compete these different quests. And then depending on who won the quest and finished the most uh, objectives during that certain instance, then you go into the next one with more gear for your people and stuff and along those lines. But this is also chibi themed, which is those small little anime cute ish looking things where they have really big eyes and really small bodies and really big heads. And everything about this game would not be something that I'd like. Mark, have I ever asked to play some dice chucking Euro game at game night? No. Yeah, definitely no. It sounds repellent right now. I know it is. It does sound like that, but I absolutely love this game. The other aspect of this game that I normally don't like is whenever I hear about a campaign in a game, I say, oh, that's cool, but it's probably not for us because we can't get campaigns played enough. You know, we just don't have the time for it. We're playing too many different games or something along those lines. But this is a campaigned Ameritrash dice chucking game, and I absolutely love it. I love this game so much. I actually have every single expansion not purchased, but on my wish list. And every single time I trade for a game, the first thing I look for is more expansions to Arcadia Quest. And I just don't know why. Mark, have you played this one? You've fallen into the trap. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, yeah. <laughs> no, no, this is one I haven't. Uh, I, well, first off, you've never pulled it out and said, hey, let's play this. So I've never had the opportunity to pull out and play it. And uh, I'm, I'm with Craig on this one. This doesn't sound like one for me. I know. It just doesn't seem like it. Have, have you heard or seen it, Craig, over on your side of the, the pond there? Yep, and I can see you've fallen into the trap of must try and catch it all Pokemon style because when I uh, looked up Eric Lang a while ago on BGG, it must be like three quarters of his entries are Arcadia Quest stuff. Yeah, it's just, it's the most stuffed game and it's, it's just a fun little game. It's fun because you actually draft the characters and then all the characters are completely unbalanced. So then Bill, who took this one thing, everybody's ganging up on him to try to kind of self-balance it. But it's a goofy little game. I think the main reason I don't bring it enough to games, Mark, is it takes a really long time to set up. 
and I have enough stuff for it that it makes it even harder to set up. And it's just it's a little too much. I love the game, but I really shouldn't. And it definitely has some faults, but I just find it an absolute bucket of fun. I try to play it at Clopcon every year just because it's it's a fun game to set up and play for a couple hours. You totally shouldn't like this, Jake. After our conversation the other day when you just moved house was things are poison. That's a direct quote. Right. So Yeah, so and this is, ex- this is exactly the most thingsy game <laughs> of any game. It's just stuff. It's just things inside a box. You know, whenever you hear reviewers say, oh, well, this game has a lot of components and like it's a loaded statement that it might be a good thing. This is exactly for who this game is for. Just where it's a box full of stuff and you feel like you paid your money to get a lot of things and The game's good too, but it definitely is on that street name. I can't criticise, mate, because I'll be blunt, I I like Eric Lang's Blood Rage and a similar thing, right? I'm not massively into mini-packed games that are Euros, but that game does it for me, so I can't criticise you for liking it. Speaking of boxes of stuff, on my uh, hallway right now, I've got Gotham City Chronicles that was kind of... Oh my God. I know. I don't, I don't even want to open it, man. It's just, it's just there. And I'm like, oh, it's just so many things. It's just full of stuff. It's a, it's a box full of toys. That's what these games are. I want it out. I want it out. Get it out of my house. <laughs> that's hilarious. Hey, just man up and say you want to play with dolls for a bit. It's okay. Well, honestly, that's what it is. I've actually considered getting back into painting miniatures. I was really into Warhammer 40k um, in my youth years. And then I realized that's just a big waste of money. But I've debated on wanting to get out my paints and everything just to paint these guys because they're such captivating little minis. And I don't even like anime. Like, it's not something I enjoy. There is no reason I should like this style of game for whatever reason. But it sings to me. So can't explain it. That's Arcadia Quest. There it is. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to predict this is not a 3C on the mogul scale. Am I right on that one? It actually, so I haven't played it in a while. It might actually be over a year. The rules are pretty simple. You're kind of just doing some stuff on your turn, and then you kind of roll to resolve certain attacks. And there's some special rules about certain things, but I'd probably give it a 2B, if that, but it's fun. I just like it. It's fun. Cool. Why should I break form here? Let's go with another miniature rich game on this one. And, or I guess, I, I guess this would be a game that's been made miniature rich. My selection, so a little background here, I had a lot of trouble with this one because I tend to either really like things or really not like them, and there tends to actually not be a lot of middle grounds. Like, I really don't like miniatures games, and I don't like co-op games, so I just don't have them and I don't play them. So I don't really have stuff on that list that I should like. And Anyway, it's more the case with games that, like, well, of course you should like this game. Why is it that you might not like this game? So I'm coming at it from the approach on more like, why shouldn't I like this game yet do anyway? So these are all games you look at and go, well, it doesn't surprise me that you like these games, but why is it that you think you wouldn't like these games? So my first choice is Eclipse by Toku Tal. I'm not even going to try that one. Eclipse. It's a big 4X game <laughs> where you've got a bunch of space axes, and I have the miniature spaceships that you basically go play dudes on the map in space and you up your tech and you try to conquer the rest of the universe and beat everybody else up in the process. It's a great game. We've played it a whole bunch of times. Jake, I know this is a massive favorite of yours and has been forever. It's a great game. Why, Mark, should you not like this game? I hate dudes on a map games. <laughs> I'm really, really, really bad at them. And I'm epically bad at Eclipse. So much so that literally I kicked myself out of the last time I played it by accident in the second move of the game. Literally 20 minutes into it would be normally like a four hour game. I was already down to like no planets and <laughs> so forth just because I always extend overextend myself leave the back door open and somebody just comes in and takes my home planet and I'm out. And then I sit there for six hours, yet I still love the game. Jake, what do you think? 
So I actually have a counterpoint for this. So would you describe, I know these terms are functionally useless, but would you describe this as an Ameritrash style game or as a Euro style game? No, I'd actually describe this as a Euro style game. Okay. Cause that was gonna be my counterpoint is I don't view this as a dudes on a map game. There's so much other things you're doing with investing in technology and building different types of ships and going up different org charts and all that stuff and all these different technologies. It really doesn't feel like a dudes on a map game. And I'd actually argue that it isn't one. The only thing that exists in it is it does have combat, but there's not always a good benefit to doing combat. You don't always take things over well. You have to nuke the people and all that stuff. And there's a bunch of limitations on that. And you can defense yourself out. I've actually seen games of this where no one attacks anyone. So it feels kind of like Scythe where it's like, yeah, I guess it could be described as like a combat game, but that's just really one aspect of it. You get bloody VPs in this. I agree with you completely on all of your points there. And if I actually listened to that and played like that, then I might do better. And <laughs> But I don't. I forget that it's not about that. And I go in and rush in headfirst and attack people blindly. And then I wonder why I don't have any ships the rest of the game. Right. Because you, th- you threw them away. You threw them against the, the, the iron curtain of Jake's military prowess. Yes, that's exactly the problem. So... I'm so bad at this game that I should hate it. I should never want to play it again because I sit there for six hours looking at having no no game of Eclipse has taken six hours or should take six hours. This is half an hour a person. I'm sorry. I love this game enough and I can't have you be bragging on it. This game is quick. I love it. I'm inclined to agree, right? I mean, I remember down the game club I used to go uh, in Reading, there was a group that used to play every evening. Like, you know, it took them like two and a half hours. I appreciate it when when it's your first game where you don't play it a lot. It could take longer. Don't get me wrong, but you can whip through this. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a 30 minute per player game. Sorry, but continue your ranting. I apologize. I shouldn't get in the way. We know why this takes six hours. OK, fair, fair, fair point. <laughs> it, let me rephrase anyway. that. When you play this game with me, it does not take six hours. Correct. I will die on that hill. <laughs> I, I agree with you completely on that one. So anyway, as a result of all those things, I should hate everything about this game. And I don't. I love it. I love the building, the technology. I have the miniature ship set that I have actually painted all of them. I love painting miniatures and I've spent an ungodly amount of time painting all those ships. And it looks really cool. And I'm up for playing it anytime and finishing last anytime. We should bring this one, Mark. We both love this game. And I don't think I've played it for two years. We should bring your copy because and it plays good with higher player counts. It'd be really fun. We should do that. Yep. Nope. I agree completely. So that's Eclipse, published by Lotta Pelly. And that would be a, hmm, geez, how would we rate this one? <sighs> there are a lot of rules to this one. How about a 4C? I don't know. It feels wrong calling it a 4. I was saying a 4 in my head. I think it's a 3.5C. Like a 3 plus C. Yeah, I mean, if you the, will. the rules explanation's longer than you think on this one. There's a lot of rules to this game. Yeah, just, yeah, you're probably right. Yeah, you're probably right. Anyway, that's my number one pick. I should hate it because I'm horrible at it, but I don't. It's an awesome game. Craig, what's your number two choice? Well, my number two choice is a middle-sized entry, so I've tried to go small, medium, large. And this guy is called Ricochet Robots. He's designed by Alex Randolph, released in 1999. In Europe, you could get it by Abacus Spiel, or in America, it'd be Z-Man Games. Uh, it's language-independent, pick up whichever copy's cheaper. It is... Basically, it's a themeless, competitive, real-time routing puzzle. Shall we move on? No. I, I, so, no. It's you have a grid and you have coloured robots. Uh, yellow robot, red robot, green robot, blue robot, whatever. And you're not the robots. You've got to try and get the robots to a given target destination, as uh, determined by a randomizer chip, chip, in the lowest number of moves possible. 
Okay. We're all competing to get the best solution. So I'll give you the sequence. The robots are in their various spots. I'll flip a chip and it will look like, I say, blue planet. We'll look where the blue robot is and we'll see where the blue planet destination is. Now, here's the rub. Robots can only move in straight directions. And when they move into a solid object, say a wall or the edge of the map, they stop. That's a move. Then you move them again in a different plane. That's another move. So all that sitting over this map, silently, pensively, trying to determine the shortest number of moves to get that blue robot to the blue planet symbol. Eventually, Jake shouts, six, because he thinks it's going to take six moves. He flips the sand timer, and we've got 30 seconds or so to underbid him and try and get it there in five. If after sand timer's gone, Jake can demonstrate a solution. Uh, he gets the chip, on we trot, flip in another token. I mean, so far, so dull, right? I mean, I'm virtually asleep describing the rules here. But, <laughs> but it, maybe, it's, maybe it's a bit of tension where Jake goes, oh, shucks. He might use a different word to shucks. I don't know, Jake. He might, he might curse. And, All right, well, we'll uh, see. We'll and, see. And he realises, oh, no, it's not six. It's seven. And, of course, then someone else, uh, if, if he can't demonstrate the six, he actually has to give his chip to the person who can demonstrate the seven. It lasts circa 40 minutes. And by 10 minutes in, your brain is completely and utterly wrecked. So why shouldn't I like it? I shouldn't like it because the interactivity is zero, all but zero. We're just, you know, racing, you know, it's like a, we might as well be sitting next to each other doing Sudoku races. (laughs) It doesn't seem like a game at all. Yet, when you watch somebody complete a solution, it has that kind of moment. You know, when you play chess against someone and you see they they play a good move and you go, oh, that's a good move. It doesn't matter. It's a good move that's beating you. You appreciate the beauty of the move. Well, with this, every time somebody demonstrates a solution, you're either going, oh, that's a clever solution, or you're kicking yourself that you didn't see it because you're obviously a complete imbecile who couldn't see that free move solution. (laughs) (laughs) The components are crude as you like. The the, the robots look like wood-burning stoves to the point where I talk about moving the black stove and the red stove. The theme is null and void. I mean, bouncing robots, is that even a theme? It's just, you know, what is this thing? And look, it's a puzzle. I, I actually am not a big fan of roll and rights because I'd argue that, you know, they're puzzles that we just happen to be playing in the same room. A hot take there. Yet this one, because of just the pure, raw brain burn that makes you want to take a nap after you finish playing, it's brilliant. Like I say, I mean, if you, it's pretty cheap in Europe. I'm almost certain it'll be available in America if it's a Z-Man printing. It's one to crack out with your family if they like um, that little bit older and like things that are mentally intense. And again, it's another one that you can teach super quick. Sounds like a real-time, non-cooperative version of Mechs versus Minions. Is that a fair enough take? Ugh, no, it's, it's even more abstract than that because it's just a routine puzzle. I'm literally... Okay, so somebody intelli- let's try and expound a little bit on this to try and demonstrate some of the intelligence, right? So just because the blue robot is trying to get to the blue planet doesn't mean I can't move the yellow robot because the thing I didn't mention is that the robots stop when they hit other robots. Hmm. So the solution might not just be moving the blue robot. I might move the yellow robot to bounce the ro- blue robot into him so he stops a row shorter so he can then go left. It's Go and have a look at pictures of this online, guys. Um, My words are failing to articulate the mechanics, but I hope they are succeeding in articulating my respect for it as a weird game that works. Wow, yeah. Well, the name Ricochet Robots would certainly bear that, uh, you know, bounce one robot off another thing. Yeah, but I mean, 
let's be honest, it's it, what's the setting? Is is it a near future where robots just want to bounce off each other? Is this like <laughs> is this like what Skynet does after we're all dead? Yeah, this is the plan. This is this is the this is the robots' end goal, just to bounce <laughs> off each other. Well, this seems fast, and you said it was fast too, like fourteen minutes for like a full play of the game or something along those lines. Sorry, that's my poor pronunciation. Uh, it's more like 30, oh. 30 to forty, because occasionally the solution. Oh, that's not bad. Occasionally the solution will be twenty, Jake, and it's not just a case of demonstrating the twenty. It's working out the twenty and then remembering the twenty for the time the sand timer takes to go down. And then, yeah, like and it's crazy. I mean, the rules say that if a solution appears to be too hard, the players can all agree to veto it. But in reality. What actually happens is everybody goes, no, I've got this. No, 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 I've got this. So you all sit there watching each other crunch. Oh, that's awesome. That, that This actually definitely seems on our wheelhouse, Mark. This actually seems, because we both like heads down kind of games, and it'd be fun to heads down against each other. Mm-hmm. Well, and what's funny is, as as you were describing this one and mentioned rolling rights, I just thought of a variant of Metro X where we lay out all the cards in the row and start a timer and say go and see who gets the best score. Oh, that'd be funny, yeah. Interesting. And you can literally take the card and put them in any spot and plan it all out. And or you got to play them out in order or something like that, where you're literally like racing to the best solution, giving a set of cards and you're playing it in a real time fashion. I don't know. I got to chew on that one a little. Awesome. The other thing I'd just like to say, actually, did you notice there were no player pieces? There's just board pieces and you take them as score tokens. This works at Christmas if you have the right group, because you could, there's no limit to the number of players apart from being able to get around the table to see the pieces. Oh, sure. So it could be a quite nice way to close out an evening with, a, say, game night, and you've got eight of you there. Eight, eight people can play this. I mean, seven of you are going to be awful and upset at how wonderful Mark is because it's one of those ones that when you're on a streak, you're hot, and when you're not, you're very much not. But, you know, it's, it's oh, let's say, there you go. Ricochet Robots by Apica Spiel, designed by Alex Randolph, 1999. And the rating is? It's a one, one B. I mean, there's no depth of strategy in this. Like you'd even argue it's a one A, but yeah, it's because of the way it works as a routine puzzle, it just burns your brain. That sounds great. Jake, what's your number two? My number two is one that I think someone in that, that, that's on this podcast very much dislikes. I'm talking about Stockpile by Brett Sobel and Seth Van Orden. Um Oh, that's funny. I I told you you can't use those anymore. You you, you get one a year. I think it was last year I told you. I loaded it up specifically for that one. Oh, really? Okay. So let's describe this game from a top-down standpoint. What you are is you, it is a tongue-in-cheek stock market trading game. So we all take special powers like Bill Gates and uh, Warren Buffett. And you're all these different people. They're not actually Warren Buffett. You're different people. But, you know, it's, it's like one of those things where you're copying somebody, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And what you're doing is you are investing in five or six different companies. And at every turn, you're going to get a nested pair of a movement card and a company. Then there's a couple other phases where you can buy and sell stocks and stuff, depending on certain play orders. And then the very end of the round, you flip over and then everybody adjusts the value of certain things. So for example, if I know that the green company is going to increase by two, I then will play my turn knowing that information. But there's a certain set amount of movement cards and, a, and obviously and only a certain set amount of uh, company cards. There's also this interesting bidding mechanism, which is technically like a worker placement bid, bidding mechanism. So on top of the motions, there's these pools, what do they call stockpiles, where you're actually going to put 
cards in it. So for example, in a four player game, I think there's four and you can put one card face up and one card face down. And when you put them, you can put them in any combination and that kind of also indicates it. And on these cards are different stocks or different powers or different whatever different little powers are on them. So after you do all that stuff, you're plating the things down and you're actually bidding each other up on it. So there's a progressive number, and this is probably too granular for the explanation, but I just really like it, where it goes like 1, 3, 5, 10, 17, something along those lines, and it really increases. So when it's your turn, if you have your guy in your hand, you can move him to a different spot as long as it's a bigger bid than somebody else, as long as you're following the track. And it really becomes a good game. I know you dislike this game, Mark, and I think I would normally say why I don't dislike it, but I think I agree with you on all your opinions, and I'd like to hear what you think about it. Sure. Like if we were going to do the exact inverse of this category on games that I should like and really, really don't, this might be the poster child for that one. It's a light financial game. It plays quick. It's amusing. I've tried to like this game so hard and I've played it a number of times with you. My challenge within it is that I feel that there is absolutely zero connection between what I do and how I end up in the final standings. It's just, oops, I won. Oops, I lost. <laughs> hey. Okay, I got all these investments and oh, I drew the card that made it go down a whole bunch. Whoops. And so it's one of those that I, I think that category is really hard to do, to do a light stock market game and make it not awful. Because I look at other games that have tried to do that as well. I'm thinking of Klondike Rush or some of the other ones. And man, it's so hard. It's always the one you lighten them up to make them approachable. Something important gets left out of it. And that important thing is usually some amount of agency in the stock market movements. And I feel that this one suffers from that. So it's out of print today for me, because one that's like a stock market game that works is Harbin Goot uh, by Winning Moves. Um, that is a light stock market game that absolutely works and that I could teach my mother who doesn't play games. Yet, um, unfortunately, it's out of print in Europe. I just wish that, that I agree with you, Mark. It's a really hard niche to do well. Yeah. So I guess I agree with all your thing, all your statements here, but I'm going to argue with one. But the other thing that I think we shouldn't like this games for is it's kind of feels like a party game with way too many rules. So it is one of those games that I think people will laugh and feel kind of smart in and it helps break the ice because people are chatting a lot and there's a lot of conversation going on in the game. But then there's a lot of phases in the game and everyone's powers activate at different times of the phases. So every time I'm running this game, I'm doing that thing where I feel like an auctioneer where I'm saying, OK, Brett, you get to go. What are you going to do? Brett, you're doing that. OK, this is the time, Kyle, when you do your special bid, are you going to do it? OK, now now we all bid in an order and it feels really annoying. But I like this game. I disagree with your sentiment, Mark, that there's not a lot of agency you have in the game. The only thing you don't have agency on is the stock market manipulation. You are given a certain amount of information based on what the stock market is going to do. You're insider trading. So some guy gets on the phone, calls you and tells, says, OK, well, our stock's going to take a huge hit this next week. See what you can do about it. When the real agency in the game is assembling the stockpiles and bidding on them. So I've actually in this game put down a stock that I know is going to tank face up or hit it underneath something that's a crappy stock and then bid way too much on that stockpile to start off. So people think that I'm supplying this. Oh, my God, this is some amazing stockpile that everyone's going to try to care for. Or vi vice versa, if there's a really underpowered stock, maybe I'll put that order that I know is going to increase a lot. I'm going to put it in a stockpile face down, but then put something garbage on top of it or something or something that doesn't look good. And I'm going to really bid low on that one. So everyone thinks, oh, he's just going for that cheap little stock. It's going to get better. I think there's a lot of agency in this game. You just have absolutely no control on what really is going to happen to the stock market, aside from a couple of special power cards that you can pick up. 
And I would say, too, so you're right. Your points are true that a lot of the game is in assembling those stockpiles and trying to mislead other people in that one. The challenge is I feel like you have too little information to make an intelligent choice on those. So, like, sure, you have one. You, there's four cards there and one of them is face up and you just have to go, OK, I'll take I'll roll the dice on that one. <laughs> Oops, it's crappy. You know, Oh, it's only one card. Well, I guess I'll take that one. Hey, it's something good. And I don't think there's enough information to make an intelligent choice on those. So, you know, you feel smart for having tricked somebody into taking your pile. Well, there's only two bad cards. So if you know where one of the bad cards is, you can you can adjust and see what the other things are and then start playing. Well, saying, OK, well, somebody's really bidding on this green thing. It's probably not the bad card because I know I have the bad card. I think you have to you have to really deduce what people have in their hand. And if you can't at the end of the bidding phase say, OK, well, I think my dad knows what this company's doing. You know what this company's doing. You know what this company's doing. I think you're 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 lacking a depth of flavor in the game. And I can absolutely understand why you have your mentalities on that. Yep. This might be my twins. This might be your twins. It's a bluffing. It's a bluffing game dressed in stock market um, dressing. Right. I mean, agreed. Yeah. Yeah, that's a fair take. Yep. You step away from the stock market thing and just forgive it for being a bluffing game. And it's actually a lot more enjoyable. Have you played it with the expansion, Jake? I have. I have the first expansion of this one. I know there's a second expansion on Kickstarter right now, and I'm debating on whether or not I'm going to pick it up because I really like the expansion. And what the expansion does is it fluctuates what the market cards are going to be in the game. And it comes with a couple of other commodities, which is functionally a set collection. You like this one, though, Craig? I enjoy it. I enjoy it for what it is. I mean, every time I've played it, I've had fun. It's not one that I reach for off the shelf these days because my group's changed. You know, it's that kind of thing where the group alignment thing. But do you know what? I could quite easily take it out tomorrow. I've got people coming around and I think we'll all have a fun time. So if that's a measure, sure, I like it. Yeah, it's 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 a fun game, probably more than a than a good game, I'd probably say. But yeah, that's stockpile for me. Um, I'd give it a 2B. Okay. Um, except for the one person that has to run it and it's probably a 3B for them because they have to point to everything and be, okay, well, now it's your turn to do the special power, all those things. But stockpile, it's fun. All right. The next one I'm going to talk about here is actually a category of games rather than a game itself. And this is going to be a big WTF for you guys. Isn't that a game, a category of games I really should hate with every fiber of my being? And I don't. I absolutely love them is 18xx. I should hate this. Everything about it I should hate. I hate everything accounting related with a fury of a thousand suns. I mean, like the last thing I'm interested in hearing about or talking about is anything having to do with bookkeeping or stocks or finances. I'm an artist, for Christ's sakes. I hate accounting with every fiber of my being. I also don't do well with take that kind of things. And there's liberal amounts of take that in 18xx. So by those measures alone, I should absolutely hate this game. Yet I absolutely love playing 18xx. Why? Pretty simple. It's not that 18xx gives you a large number of levers to pull. But the latitude in which you can move things with those levers is truly jaw-dropping. And the way that you can influence and scheme and plan things in the game is really second to none of any game that I can think of. So you can engineer your own demise or your own success with absolute agency and do it in some unbelievably clever ways. And I think that's really unparalleled in any other game system out there. I'm sure you got some opinion on this, guys. What do you have to say? I have nothing. I have no disagreements. I just I agree completely. Yep. The only thing that's different is I love accounting and I enjoy some take that. The only thing that can happen is this will happen in some 18xx games. You can do everything, but sometimes just people aren't doing what you need them to do. And because the game is so player run, you can really just get in a bad place just because just it's not working for you. You know, 
and you had the best of intentions. I mean, it's deterministic, right? I mean, I agree with you in the sense of you coming in, Mark, what you're saying about it's accountancy, it's all these things that should be dull. But for me, it's the fact it's deterministic that elevates it. You know, sure, it's accounting, but the things you're doing, there's no a dice, a dice has to roll this or a card has to do that. The fact that it's player driven, as Jake put it, and absolutely brutal is what elevates it beyond those things that should put me against it. But I agree, Mark, it's hard for me to disagree when you're right. <laughs> Mark being right. There we go. Oh, man. Awesome. The clock is right twice a day. So, <laughs> all right. So, yeah, I don't know how much I need to go into farther depth on that one. But, um, you know, if I look back at some of the greatest gaming experiences I've had over the last oh, year or so since I've started playing 18xx, they, you know, the largest number of them would be in that because I just, I love the breadth of experience and some of the crazy things I've seen happen. Like, I'm in an online game right now where we were breaking out the bankruptcy rules in SR1 in a game of 1849 last night. I've never seen that before. There's a breadth of experiences in the genre. And, well, I'm not even going to wax the lyric on it, guys. It's your podcast. (laughs) Yeah, if you want to hear Craig's thought on 18xx, it's pretty easy to find. Go to the train (laughs) rush. He speaks at length about it often. But yeah, we're, we're, we're such big fans of this game. And hopefully someday we'll actually be able to play an 18xx game together jake if you were part of the cool club you'd be playing 1822 but you had to get married oh my god i know it's so hard going all the way to thailand for two weeks it's going to be so hard with no internet well no computer i'm sure they have internet in tyler thailand i'm just definitely not gonna bring my computer so let's bring this thing home gentlemen why don't you hit us off with your number one game that you didn't think we should like click craig but you end up loving it sure it's the biggest game of my set it's uh, i comma spy designed by c simon reed it's hotness in that it was released in 2015, and it is the only title to date that's been released by Lost Boys Productions. Uh, the setting, we are in an espionage-racked pre-war Europe. We are all spies for the nations on the board, but that identity is hidden. Um, I- I'm somewhat vomiting in my mouth already when I say hidden role. It's card-driven in the sense that we're going to be playing out cards out of our hands. Uh, We've all got identical cards, for the record. Driving our actions on the board. For the record, the dressing on this board is gorgeous. That's one thing I will say is is partly why I like it. The the chips are about an inch thick and cards are great and the art's all internally consistent. But spider boy. And we are, over the course of circa two hours, going to be trying to advance the interests of our nation whilst not getting identified as a spy for that nation. How do our opponents identify us as a spy of a given nation? Well, they're going to be seeing which nation's interests we try and advance via some um, events that reveal that we've kind of programmed. They're also going to see which cards we're playing out because when we play out given cards, they're going to change the fortunes of nations on the board. So if I'm playing out a lot of Russia cards that make Russia better, I'm probably Russian, right? Or am I? And I'll say after two hours, we're going to see which nation has the biggest pile of cubes because that's the one thing this game absolutely does do right the scoring's done in cubes and whoever has the biggest pile of cubes for their nation is the winner there's some slight modifiers where you can play a variant where you successfully guess um, who person is a agent for then they lose points or more to point their nation lose points that sort of thing but the general flow of it is that so why should i hate it okay so it's card driven card play driven and as a, I know this is going to sound really broad because cars are just kind of like a means of selecting actions. And I love brass, which is car play driven. But, if, but typically for me, that association of car play reminds me of when I used to play competitive park card games. 
And these days, that's not something that leaves my blood running a bit cold. So the actual physical interface for this thing should put me off it, even though I'm not saying there's anything wrong with car-driven games. It's just not something I gravitate towards. Social deduction, I don't really have a group that does social deduction these days, and it's been a while since I've been into that. The balance for the player factions is all over the place. I mean, we could be wrong. We've only played it like, you know, seven, eight times, but Italy seems like a hard country to win with, a bit like diplomacy. If you're Italy, you're the you're the butt, not the boot. And there's broken as heck combos in here. So part of the way of advancing your stakes in a game is to pick up assets from little hidden piles and what's in there is a bit random. And if you happen to get two good assets, then you can win your game. Like totally win your game. And some of these assets are completely unhinged or seemingly unhinged. And lastly, when you get behind in this game, because you can't say which nation you're playing as, you can't even have people like, feel sorry for you or have to do a bit of banter around it because it will break the game. If you say, oh, shucks, Germany's out of it and I'm Germany, you've killed the game for the other three players. Absolutely killed it stone dead. Oh, wow. Yep. Yeah, so t- wow. So it's, 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 it's really dependent on everybody playing correctly. Yeah, totally. If you, if you break the fourth wall, you've ruined the game. You might as well put it away. And we realized this on our first play when someone did that. And we went, oh, okay. So... And like I said, it's, it's kind of weird because after the two hours, you have this, um, this enormous sense of relief as you talk through the last two hours of shared experience and go, oh, yeah, when you did that thing in Berlin, oh, man, I was so wild. You know, or, oh, did you see how those politicians flopped? <clears throat> it's, it's weird in the sense that all these things should leave me cold. A long-running social deduction game with questionable balance and where you can't even have banter to use a British turn of phrase, as the game progresses. Yet strangely, it's kind of like flawed art, even though everything I'm looking at is flawed. When you look at it holistically, it's beautiful. It's like a a really fun game. So where does that description sit with you guys? Anything particularly interesting in there to you? Or does that sound so much wallpaper? So I looked it up on BGG and there is absolutely nothing that would make me stop while I'm seeing somebody play this game at a game store and try to be more interested in it. But now hearing you describe it, it definitely seems like something that might be more in our wheelhouse. What do you think, Mark? Yeah, and I th- we love the shared experience thing. That goes back to what I was talking about with uh, World Without End, where, you know, if you're all doing this thing and you're all suffering through it together or triumphing together, but it's not a cooperative game, we like that sort of gameplay. And I think that is a fun approach to it, even if it is a, you know, shared deduction game or hidden role, whatever that is. I love the theme too, so I've never seen this one in person. Well, imagine suffering though, Mark, and you're uniquely suffering because your country is the one that's behind and you have to keep a poker face. So you're just sitting there watching your country get crushed because here's the sick thing, right? If there's four of you playing, it's basically fixed at four players. You can play it with less players, but you never bother, right? And there's six nations in it, I think. So two of those nations are robots. So people will be wailing on given nations going, oh, it's okay, it's only the robot. Or maybe they'll go, oh, that nation's doing really badly. It must be the robot. Oh, no, it's not the robot. It's you. <laughs> That's hilarious. It does sound very clever. But the humiliation's unreal, yet weirdly, as long as you balance it out over a course of numerous plays where sometimes you're Italy and sometimes you're Germany, you know, bad, good. I think it's a fun game. And like I say, I shouldn't like it. Yet it's another one of those ones where if someone said to me, do you know what, we'll make the two hours tonight to play it. Yeah, I'd play it. That's awesome. I spy. What would you give it on the mogul scale there, Craig? Uh, there's slightly more fiddly rules than you'd like. The manual's a bit 
NAF in some respects. Uh, it's, so it's probably a free on that basis. Depth, a C. It's a free C, and I know it's an overused. It's like the other bucket in a cool logging system, but it's a free C. Absolutely. Nothing wrong with being a 3C. 3C is where it should be. All right. So I'll do mine real quickly here because I think we're getting close to our time. One of my least favorite mechanisms in board games is deck building. I went through a phase of my life where I kept on trying to find deck building games that I'd like and I'd buy one and I'd be like, this is boring and then I'd sell it. And I did that with about six to eight games. Another thing I really dislike is really finicky rules or rules where one piece comes out in not every single game and then you have to look up what that piece does. So when there is a deck building game by GMT, who's notorious for having those little pieces that may or may not come out, I probably shouldn't like it, but I absolutely love this game. I'm speaking of Time of Crisis by Ray Farrell and Brad Johnson I. So this is a GMT style chits and counters uh, kind of a, it's not a war game, it's a war Euro game, but it has deck building as the main mechanism. But what's so cool about it is you can select any card from your draw pile to add to your hand at the end of the phase. You're not beholden to the luck of the draw when it comes to it. It is historical. I thought it would have an easy teach, but it did not. And it also has dice resolution to combat, which is something I absolutely despise. The final thing it also has that should be another knock in the bad direction about it is it has very strong powers on the cards that new players may not understand. However, I'm just enamored with this game. I know we've played it a couple of times and it got poo-pooed by a few people. Um, Mark, did you actually get the luck of playing this game with me? (laughs) You know, what's funny is I was literally just thinking that. I went, I haven't played this one. This actually sounds really fun. I kind of want to play this. Is this that game that everybody hated? (laughs) Right. So it's funny because Tyler really liked it and we both really liked it. And we're like, let's play this one again. But for some weird reason, my uncle didn't like it, which I thought he'd like it. When you deck build, you get a certain number of resources in three different categories. And then every single action you can take with those resources is indicated on a sheet. So I'm like, oh, this will be really easy. All I have to do is teach the mechanism. They browse for what they can do. Wambo bambo, we're done. But he felt so overwhelmed by it and just didn't like the game. And this game has gotten a lot of critical acclaim. And I was like, this will be good for our group. It's not normally something I'd bring, but maybe it'd be something I'd like. And I actually ended up really liking it, but it fell flat twice. And I kind of don't know what to do with it from here. Have you played this one, Craig? No, I'm going to lose all my street cred right now by saying it's barely crossed <laughs> my radar. Yeah, because this this one is, I mean, it was a it was a darling of the uh, kind of more Euro, I mean, pardon me, more war game centric world for a while. Okay. From my understanding, again, I don't I, I, I don't know the wargaming world. And I'm sure there's somebody out there who knows more than me saying I'm dumb, but from at least my perception. That would explain a heck of a lot because it's part of the world that I tend not to see. Not, not through any kind of hostility, but it's just you can only see so much stuff, right? Absolutely. Same boat. So I'll bring this one again. It's Time of Crisis um, by GMT and Ray Farrell and Brad Johnson the first. I liked it. It was fun. Yeah, and weirdly, if, as I was looking through the list of games that I like shouldn't like but do... A lot of those actually turned out to be deck builders. Games like uh, Legendary. I really shouldn't like that game, but weirdly I do. So I think I would like this game. And, you know, if I'm thinking back to why I heard people didn't like it, I think that maybe it's the GMT-ish rule book. And I think if you polished out your teach on that one, maybe you'd find better fans of it. I don't know. Yeah, because it was interesting because I've, I've played this game three times or something along those lines, but I played it with our group twice. And I was the learner the first time I played. I didn't know the rules or anything. I played it at a convention. And so I learned it and it took two minutes for the guy to explain the rules. I just looked down at my sheet. and I'm like, OK, I get it. And then he took like maybe five more minutes explaining each individual action. But they're pretty self-explanatory. And I tried to do the same thing to other people when I've already learned the game this way. And they just didn't get it. 
So I, I, I don't know if I'm the best or what. Maybe that's the long story short. So I, I don't know. I'll have to I'll have to bring out Time of Crisis again because it was fun. And I think you actually would like it. It was it was neat and kind of glossing over the historical aspect of this, but it does replicate the Roman Empire time, the time of crisis very well. So I thought it was fun. All right. Bringing her home. My last choice is from a genre that I hear dumped on more than any other genre. And I kind of scratch my head and don't really understand why. That is actually the pickup and deliver genre. And my choice is Firefly by Aaron Dill, John Kovaleski, Sean Swigert, published by Gale Force 9. I see more dumping on pickup and deliver games online than any other genre of game, I think, just about other than party games. Have you guys noticed that? Oh, yeah. It's the most hated mechanism by far. Easily. That or roll or move. Yeah, roll and move I get because it's random, but could somebody educate me as to why pick up and deliver is so bad? Well, yeah, don't listen to our last podcast about um, iron clays because Gavin Brown had to pick up and deliver too, so he must be right. Is that how this goes? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no idea why. I, I, I guess people have just played bad pick up and deliver games. Is it because, I don't know, I'll admit, what you're saying there resonates with me. I can't think of more than one pick up and deliver game I like, and that's Age of Steam. Yeah, but it's yeah. interesting because I can't even think of that many pick-up-and-deliver games. I only know of like four, and most of them are pretty meh. You know, they're not something that I feel strongly one way or another. Yeah, so I don't think there's anything inherently bad with the mechanism. Everybody says they hate it, but I can't like think of what's wrong with the mechanism because Age of Steam is a fantastic game. I enjoy Firefly quite a bit, but I, I will admit, I think it maybe is a crutch for a really bad game. Like, you know, Turn and Taxes is a pick-up-and-deliver game, and that's pretty boring. <laughs> but I'd say that's a boring game, not it's boring because it's pick-up-and-deliver. I think it's okay as part of a suite of mechanisms. Like, if it's the scoring part, like it is an Age of Steam, it probably works. But if it is the entire game, oh, fetch me a pillow. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see that. So why do I like Firefly? Well, I mean, it's utter Ameritrash. I mean, this was a thing that was developed around a theme and it fits right in with the theme of the show that they're running missions where they're going to get stuff and drop it off. If you're going to do a Firefly game, it really has to be pick up and deliver. I'm a massive fan of Firefly. I've watched that series probably a dozen times and can quote just about everything else and absolutely love it. The game itself has a personal tie in for me, too, and that my brother-in-law is actually pictured on one of the cards in the game. Cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. So my brother-in-law is a Hollywood stuntman, and one of his earliest jobs was doing stunts on Firefly. And so for the first three episodes, he did stunts. And in one of them, you can actually see his face when, you know, right before they kick the guy into the jet engine. He's one of the henchmen in the ship there. And there's a card based on him. So that's kind of a cool little backstory on it. But um, anyway, my kids are also big fans of it. So we recently pulled this out and played it. And yeah, my daughter loves Kaylee and my son loves Jane. And <laughs> it's just fun running around doing Firefly themed things. And uh, I've heard this one can overstay its welcome and run way too long. That hasn't been my experience so far. But I've certainly seen some games go by that have taken really, really way too long. Anyway, don't need to go into depth on this one, but if you like the theme of Firefly and you can tolerate pickup and deliver, it does a great job of implementing that theme. And I shouldn't like it because of those things, yet I do. So I actually have had one of my least favorite gaming experiences with this game. We played it late at night. I lost everything. I gained nothing in the game. I felt like an idiot just moving around, rolling to move and kept on getting attacked by the Reavers and then the uh, kept on getting attacked by the, the colony ship or whatever the central ship is called. And I had one of the worst experiences with this game. So. I don't know if I agree with you there, Mark. Don't know. I can see where if you, yeah, I mean, there are some ways that you can steer bad things to happen to other people. That's a defensive mechanism in the game. 
And if you were a frequent target for that one and sort of get caught in this, I got bad missions and it's taking me way too long to get things and I always have to go where the Reavers are. I can certainly see why that wouldn't be fun. And maybe that's a case where you just need to fold it and start over again. I think that's what we should have done. It was late at night, too, so it might not have been the right game for the selection. As you were talking to it, Mark, a big percentage of the joy you seem to be getting from it was from the theme and the setting and the shared experiences with your kids. So would you say if you weren't into Firefly, there's much of a game left in this? Not sure I can be objective on that one. Um, I mean, it seems like a fine game. There's nothing that look in there and just go, oh man, this is garbage. Yeah, there's some randomness around drawing missions and getting a decent one, but it's mitigated by being able to, you know, draw a few and just keeping some. So you can certainly fish for a one that works with what you're trying to do. I think it's a reasonably good game, even if you didn't like the theme. Ah, good to hear. Thank you. I think the theme definitely makes it a great game, though. Right. And it's been very popular. I mean, you look at the number of expansions that Gale Force 9 has put out for this thing. It is one of their evergreen titles, so I can't be the only one that thinks this way. Yeah, and have you seen the the, the broken token case for this thing? It's ridiculous. They put everything in the, oh, in the sun in there. The big damn box. There it is. <laughs> All right, well, we should probably wrap this one up. Fantastic. Craig, one more time, give yourself a plug. Sure, if you'll invite me to, like I say, thanks for having me on the show. If you want to hear more about 18xx and soon the 18xx uh, Mechlin Railcon, then head on over to the train rush and have a listen. So thanks for having me on the show. Sounds awesome. So for the Gaming Moguls, I'm Mark. I'm Jake. And he's Craig. Good night, everybody. Cheers. Good night. Cheers. This has been the Gaming Moguls Podcast, co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Klopfenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, at GamingMoguls. Or reach us via email, jake at GamingMoguls.com or mark at GamingMoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening.